Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning. Well, whether you're joining us online or you're here on our campus, I want to say welcome to Sunday mornings at Sunridge. If this is your first time and you've not uh, met me, my name is Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor. We have an amazing staff uh, and a board of elders and great volunteers, but I happen to you guys happen to be stuck with me as your lead pastor, so here I am. Yeah, I know. You're hoping for something better, but... Um, we're going to be taking communion in the middle of my message today, so if you didn't get uh, communion set up when you came in, I encourage you just to get up right now and get it, because you're going to want to be a part of that when we get there, and we won't, we won't uh, make fun of you for walking around church during the middle of my message. Many people do it from the back to try and stay awake. I know who you are. So, you know, uh, blindness, spiritual blindness or blindness to truth can take many forms. Uh, first of all, there are some people that just blind, you know, you're intellectually open to things, but you, ca- you can't understand it yet. Like if someone were to try to teach me quantum physics, you know, as, as hard as I would want to know it, I don't think that I'd be able to understand it. But blindness can also take on what are intentional forms. Uh, It can be willful. And social scientists uh, and psychologists call one version of that denialism. I'm going to put the definition up here on the screen. It's when a person denies reality as a way to avoid a psychologically uncomfortable truth. So a person in denial will insist that something is true or false, in spite of the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. As uh, AJ mentioned, we're in a study of Mark's gospel that began on the last day of December, and we hope to finish on Easter with a celebration of the resurrection and the resurrection story. But as we mentioned, you know, Mark's gospel has a purpose. He's writing his biography of Jesus to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And thus far, as we've gone through Uh, his gospel, we've seen that people have a mixed reaction to him. And he records the opposition coming from one group in particular, the Pharisees. And what's interesting about their opposition is this, that number one, their own scriptures said that one day a Messiah would come. That two, Jesus perfectly fulfilled what they thought the Messiah would be, what their scriptures told them it would be. And third, as, Mar- as we've seen already, as we've gone through Mark, he's detailed all these ways in which Jesus is accredited by many miracles and healings that validate that he is who he said he is, the Son of God. Yet they deny it. They don't just deny it, but they oppose him. And even, they even oppose the good works that he does. So today, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to look at six miracles that Jesus performed. We're going to go fast. And then secondly, we're going to look at what we're going to call the Pharisee effect. You'll see that in your note sheet. And we're going to explore what Jesus has to say about why they deny 
the truth that he is the Messiah and what are some of the root causes of their blindness. And then hopefully along the way, as we always do here at Sunridge, we, uh, we try to like bring that all forward to you and me in uh, 2024 living in the Temecula Valley. How does this all apply to us? So let's look at the six miracles. And as, as we jump in there, remember that Jed last week talked about how Jesus had sent his disciples out to do ministry. And now they've come back to get with him and to privately kind of debrief and download their experiences. Uh, but that's not to be because the crowds follow them wherever they go and they beat them um, in their race to the next destination. And that's where the first of these six miracles occurred. It's in Mark 6.30, uh, beginning in Mark 6.30. And in this miracle, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And uh, there are ways outside of town. They're in the countryside. It's getting late, and people are hungry. And Jesus turns five fish and two loaves of bread into fish sandwiches for 5,000. And the leftovers, Mark says, fill 12 baskets. Now, sometimes we can think of Jesus or God as like this supernatural being that, that is mostly concerned with we believe the right things and say the right things and get our morals right. And those are, those are all important. But in this miracle, I think what we see is that God's compassion goes beyond just convincing people of who he is. That God cares about people and their physical needs. And that he wants his, his followers, his disciples, to be a part of that endeavor in the world. The second miracle is when Jesus walks on water. And that's in Mark 6, beginning in verse 45. And here Jesus has gone off by himself to pray, and the disciples are going to travel by boat to Bethsaida. And in verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can totally relate to that picture. Do you, do you ever feel like you're rowing as hard as you can and you're not making any progress at all? I mean, you're trying to make a living for your family, you're grinding hard in your new business, you're working and knocking out your degree at the same time. You're repping for your company and you're traveling two weeks out of every month. Um, you got three kids under eight. You're coaching. All those kids you're coaching, shuttling to a tutor or a special needs counselor or to dance or to soccer. And you're working overtime along the way so that you can pay for all those activities. You just feel like you're rowing and going nowhere. You know, the last time the disciples saw a miracle in a boat on the water, does that sound like a go dog, like a Dr. Seuss book, Go Dog Go? They were in a boat on the water. Anyway, that's what it's like to be inside my head. They, the, the last time this happened, they're in the middle of this epic storm, and they fear for their lives. And here, in this case, Jesus walks out on the water to them, and they're freaked out that Jesus has authority over the natural laws of this world and immediately he spoke to them and said take courage it's I don't be afraid so this miracle says if when we're in the grind he may not walk on the walk out on the water to you but he will get in a boat with you the third miracle is in uh, Mark 7 beginning in verse 24 where Jesus heals a Greek mother's daughter now, Jesus is looking for some R&R uh, with his disciples, so they get out of town, they get out of the region where they've been working and go to this beach town in Tyre 
along the Mediterranean because there's nothing like some sand, some salt, and some tasty waves to rejuvenate the soul, right? And Tyre, if you, you know, is primarily a Greek city, and that's important. It's far from Galilee. And so, I mean, we speculate here, but Jesus is hoping to be incognito there, you know, that he won't be as well known. But he's found out, and this Greek mother comes to him begging him to heal her daughter. And uh, just that context of where she lives and that Mark notes that she's Greek is is a way of saying that uh, she's probably not a believer. And as we've talked here before, Gentiles and Jews did not fraternize together. So they're at odds with Jesus's people. She's at odds with where Jesus comes from and his people in the first century society. So then their, conver- their conversation is really interesting in its context. She begs Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus says to her in verse 27, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. At first, that kind of sounds rude, doesn't it? And the picture here is that Jews despise dogs. They, they didn't see them as pets. They saw them as unclean, like, kind of like the way we view rats. I'm sorry to offend those of you who have a pet rat. I know that they can make wonderful pets too. Um, but the Greeks kept dogs as pets and typically their dogs were fed scraps from the table from the dinner table but only after the children ate right and then the word Jesus uses here isn't just like a word for dog in general but it's small dog or puppy and so the woman replies Lord even the puppies under the table, eat the children's crumbs. So what's here is she, she's saying back to him, she's acknowledging uh, that there is a difference between her people and his people. And, but she says, it's true what you say, but the puppies eventually get theirs, and I'm here to get mine too. And Jesus acknowledges that, and she, that she's right, and he heals her daughter who's still at home. And this miracle, I think, shows Jesus caring for people who are hostile to him. And from here, Jesus' itinerary takes him back across the Sea of Galilee to the, the region we've called the Decapolis before, and we, we talked about that. It's an area primarily uh, occupied by Gentiles, And there, Jesus heals a deaf man in Mark 7, beginning in verse 31. And what's super unusual here is the way he heals him. He doesn't shout, come out, or here now, or even say, abracadabra. In verse 33, after he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue, and he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said, ephaphah which means, Mark explains this to us, it means be opened. And this is amazing. If you can picture the scene, it shows how God sees us as unique individuals in the way that he shows such care to this man. Remember, he's deaf, and he cannot speak well. So Jesus, first of all, he takes him aside. He, take, he takes him away from people because he doesn't want to make a spectacle of him. And he puts his fingers in the man's ears, and then he touches his tongue. 
and he allows the man to watch him look to heaven. Jesus is using sign language here to demonstrate to this man before he's healed what he's doing. So try imagine, try to imagine what that man must have felt like, not just to be healed, but the sensitive manner in which Jesus did it. It gives us insight into God's view of us, that he sees us. And I thought on this Sunday, coming off of that thought of how Jesus heals this man is, is a great time for us to take communion because there is a, the, the, the very tradition or ritual of communion is so unique, right? I mean, Jesus is spending a meal. He's having the Last Supper. He's gathered in an upper room with his disciples. And he takes these normal, everyday things, bread and wine, and he puts symbolism into them. And he, he's demonstrating that the gospel isn't just this remote thing that you just believe and then you go on with your life, that the gospel is part of our everyday lives. It's, and so, like, in, in all kinds of ways, we can kind of stop and think. It, it causes us to stop and think about God, and we make a correlation to spiritual things out of something that is just so mundane and everyday. And most of you know, but like when Jesus broke the bread, he said, this, this bread represents my body broken for you on the cross. And then he talked about the, the, the wine, and he said that this wine is, is representative of my, my blood that was shed for you. So again, he takes these 12 human beings, and he gives them the symbol that's so beautiful and so relatable to us today. And when he held up the bread, he said, this is my body broken, eat it. And as he passed the cup around, he said, this, this, this wine represents my sacrifice for you. And then he said, drink, all of you, drink of it. And this is such, such a beautiful reminder of how God thinks about us. The fifth miracle that happens is in Mark 8, chapter 1, begin, uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and Jesus feeds 4,000 people here. And scholars speculate that there's more here than just, you know, fish sandwich 2.0. Uh, this time, Jesus is doing this miracle and feeding people in Gentile territory. So we see that Jesus isn't just taking his message to people that are his people. He's taking his message and his concern and his care to people that are considered pagans, many of them anti-God. But he's treating them the same as he does those people that are part of his tradition. And then the last or sixth miracle is when Jesus heals a blind man in 8.22. He's back in Bethsaida. Some friends bring a blind man to Jesus, and like the deaf man, Jesus is going to heal him in this unconventional way. He, it's kind of gross in a way. He puts spit in the man's eyes, and he puts his hands on him. 
And this time, the, the way this miracle is unique, it's gradual in nature. Because Jesus does this and, and he asks him, do, do you see anything? And in verse 24, he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So he knows his vision wasn't completely whole. And this just reminded me of like how different our stories are of how we came to become Christians. Like our process. You know, some of you, you have the stories like, I was walking along in life, and then boom, I became a Christian. It was so dramatic. Wow. But for a lot of us, um, the gospel came to us slowly. It was like at first our understanding was blurry. We couldn't see it. But eventually, we saw things more clearly. So those are the six miracles. In spite of those miraculous things, these six Miraculous works of Jesus. The Pharisees are blind to what, Jesus, what God is doing through Jesus. They're, they're religiously devout, but they miss Jesus. And as they oppose him and confront Jesus in this part of Mark, Jesus is going to warn the people about what they're doing. And in essence, he says this, beware of the Pharisee effect. That's in your notes, the Pharisee effect. And this happens while he's sharing a loaf of bread. It was left over from the feeding of the 4,000, Mark says. And he warns them in this way about the Pharisees in Mark 8, 15. He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, that might sound confusing to you. It's like Jesus here is uh, not warning against a certain kind of bread, you know, like Pharisee pumpernickel or Herodian with dried tomato. I work really hard on these just to <laughs> make sure you guys are still with me. And remember that the Pharisees, they're, they're tradi traditionalists, they're conservative, they're moral, but the Herodians, we've talked about them, they're progressive, they're liberal, and cultural norms for them take precedent over the, the Old Testament scriptures when it's when it's, you know, advantageous to them. But the picture here is, um, you know, we make bread with, you know, we go to the store and we buy all these fresh ingredients. You know, we buy the yeast and then we make our bread. But in the first century, the way they made bread, it was a lot more dangerous. They would keep back a piece of the last loaf that they made and sometimes they would add juices to it to promote the fermentation. But, you know, some of that bread could become, it could become contaminated with bacteria, go bad, and cause food poisoning. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying there's something that's happening through the Pharisees that's contaminating the bread of your faith. And then in Mark 7, also in Mark 7, 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They kind of like crowd around him, try to kind of intimidate him. A.J. read this at the beginning. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. So I think we, and we would agree with them that washing your hands is a good thing, right? Um, every culture has hygiene expectations. It's a good idea to wash your hands and brush your teeth and comb your hair and put on deodorant. That's a special message for the middle schoolers today. 
But this isn't just a, a personal hygiene thing for the Pharisees. It's an important tradition. It's a reminder for them of their, their sanctification, their moral sanctification. And they would even pray this prayer. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us through your commandments and has commanded us concerning the washing of hands. Anybody prayed that prayer lately? Some traditional Jews still pray this prayer. But what, what's here is that the, to the Pharisees, these traditions were a way of distinguishing themselves from others. It was a way to demonstrate their holiness and their orthodoxy. And for them, like they, they just could not comprehend that anyone could feel differently about that thing that was so precious to them. Their, this was their thing, their jam. And so in verse 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands? Now, remember that um, Jesus was raised in the synagogue. So it's highly probable that he grew up following this practice. And probably his disciples did as well. And they probably still did. But what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't comment on the, on the purity or the validity of the tradition. He doesn't, and he, nor does he say, you know, tradition is bad or from now on I'm ending all traditions. But see, the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees here was not over whether you should wash your hands or not. It was, oh, it was between two different ways of understanding what it meant to be a good person, to be a good Jew, or to be a good believer in the first century. And Jesus is going to highlight some of those core differences. That is the yeast of the Pharisees that Jesus is warning the disciples of. And I want to pull out three from the passage. The first one is when, others, when what others see becomes more important than what's in the heart when what others see becomes more important than what's in the heart. See, the Pharisees lived in this almost like a psychological prison of honor-shame. That's just what happens in an honor-shame culture where what others thought of them was more important than anything. It was more important than who they actually were, even. And to them, he... He echoes the words of the prophet from Isaiah 29, 13 and verse 6 when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They have, they have this practice, but it has no connection to who they are inside. Now let me say that like creeds and beliefs and doing good works and actions and traditions, they're all good. They're, they're more than good. Many times they're essential. But not when they're disconnected from our heart. Now, we've talked about legalism before here, which is synonymous with Phariseeism. But here's the temptation of legalism. And, and we're all, not just Pharisees, we're, we're all, we all have that Pharisee gene in us. Um, the temptation of legalism is that we start to validate ourselves by keeping certain rules or that I hold to this creed or a marker or some tradition. Things, we can feel really good about ourselves when we say, well, I go to church. I read my Bible. I help out. 
I give, I vote this way, or I believe this, or hold this position on that. And we can feel good about ourselves. But on the inside, we can be angry and ugly. We can be loaded with expectations of other people and what they should do because we do it. We can be self-centered and greedy and bitter and judgmental. So the question is, does, does God have my heart? Not that thing that pumps blood through your body, but like our, our inner motive. When I say we should examine our hearts, I'm not saying, listen to your heart. Or, if it feels good, do it. Or, just do what your heart tells you. That's terrible advice. The prophet Jeremiah said that the heart is, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We can't trust our hearts. It's about what shapes our heart that's important. Which brings us to number two of the Pharisee effect. Number two is when our worship is disconnected from Scripture. When our worship is disconnected from Scripture. In verse 7, Jesus said, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. When we think of worship, we think of singing together, right? I speak Jesus. That is worship. But worship is really not just about singing in church, but it's about, it's everything about us. And singing is only one expression of that worship. True worship is about my priorities, my choices, my values, my very being. So worship then is the focal point of my life, the thing that motivates me from the inside. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, your teachings and values, they come from human sources, from man. They're man-made. So your worship of me, then, is vain or worthless. In fact, the truth is here that their cultural values and practices took precedence over their scripture. In verse 8, he says, You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human tradition. I have this picture in my mind of um, trying to hold on to, to two things. On one hand, trying to hold on to the commands of God, and on the other hand, trying to hold on to, you know, my human traditions, my culture, whether religious or secular, to hold on to my beliefs and values that, that have been ingrained in me, but like struggling when God is pulling me in a different direction. By the way, this would have been so offensive to the Pharisees to say that because they thought they are holding to Scripture. Aren't, aren't you glad that that's no longer a problem today? Here's a personal observation. You take it for what it's worth. Um, don't you find it easy to let go of things that are in conflict with Scripture, you know, to let go of the things that Scripture says we should let go of that are already perceived as negative in our culture or, or like by us? You know, things like uh, illicit drugs or underage drinking or stealing. Everyone hates a thief, right? But isn't it much more difficult to hold to the commands of God when it goes against my culture 
or against the beliefs or values that I've embraced or my personal preferences or what gives me value today or what affirms me or the ideology that I want to hold on to so firmly, that becomes more like a wrestling match for me. See, for a Pharisee living in the first century, their, their honor uh, as a model of spiritual purity, to, to be that, to be that model was so important to them. Therefore, they would diminish anything that would diminish their honor before people was a threat to them. And this way of thinking helped them establish what group they were a part of, their people. This is is what we do and we believe, and this is our side. And it's not hard to understand that, right? Because all of us want to be liked. We all want to be loved, to be respected, to be appreciated, especially with our friends and family. We want to fit in with our group and our people. We want to know who our people are. The Pharisees, it's not like they cared about everybody's opinion. They played for a specific audience. It was the Jewish people, their friends at the synagogue. It was super important to them that they were respected by them, that they were held high in honor. And they would do anything to keep that respect, even if it meant, as Jesus pointed out, holding to a tradition that undermine the clear command of God. And that's the cause of their spiritual blindness, what was shaping their heart. Now, how could that happen to people who are devout people? Well, I'll offer one suggestion uh, through conflation, which conflation is the merging of ideas, right? So here's a sequence of conflation, and this is how this can happen to any of us, how I think it happened to the Pharisees as well. First of all, we have a belief. It's scripture. We believe in scripture. And then it's supplemented with tradition or a belief or a preference. Like we, we kind of buttress it. And we do it all the time. You know, this, this is what the scripture says. So now we created this thing that, that, that we do. And then the second step in time, that preference will achieve equal footing through scripture. And the two become indistinguishable. It's like this thing is in the scripture, even if it isn't doesn't matter even if you point out that, like, where is that in the scripture? Or it doesn't say that. It's like, you don't care at this point. And then third, the third step is when preference takes precedent over scripture. It overrides scripture. That is, when, when the conflict is noted and clear, the preference wins. That's conflation. So I, I thought of an easy one, the one that's non-threatening for all of us. Those of my age, you can probably remember a day when you wore your best to church. And that meant what? Women in nice dresses, men in a tie. Even if you're a little kid, you had a little clip-on tie, hopefully a suit coat. That was, why? Because God wants us to show our best at church. And at the time, I bet many of you thought, yeah, that's, that's in the Word of God. It's not, but we thought that it was, right? And then, you know, like in that church, the, the first rebel that came in with shorts and flip-flops on. Amen. <laughs> Bruce is our model. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's like when that happens, it's like, oh my gosh, did you see? Bruce is wearing flip-flops and shorts at church. He's not giving God his best. And we really used to think that. That's conflation. But Jesus gives his own example. In the first century uh, Judaism, um, you could dedicate a property or a resource to, uh, to God. You called it korban. It's korban. And you got to maintain control of it. This is in the text. Um, but it was God's. You, you controlled it, but it was God's. So you couldn't sell it or make a profit off of it, which is a great idea, right? I mean, like in essence, it's, it's, a, it's a great idea to set something aside for God. But what was happening here, and Jesus points this out, is they were using the practice of korban to shield their assets from being a resource to help their parents in their older years, which is becoming more and more you know, important to me. Uh, so my kids are very familiar with korban. It's not, it's not there. And what it did is it turned into a tax loophole for them, essentially. And um, so, you know, their parents would say, hey, you know, I'm hungry. And it's like, I'd love to help you, mom and dad, but all my assets are tied up with God. They're korban. And uh, here's what Jesus said about this spiritual practice in verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So on its surface, it looked really spiritual and holy. But in holding to that, the way they held to it, good idea, but the way they held to it, they basically scratched out one of the Ten Commandments, right? To honor your parents. And then Jesus adds this, and, and you do many things like that. So it's, this isn't the only thing. Now, some of you are probably saying, yeah, Britt, you're kind of losing me here. Because um, I have no plans to give all my assets to the church just so I don't have to buy a few TV dinners for my parents, right? The point here that Jesus is making is Scripture cannot be superseded by anything. When, when we take the Scripture in totality, we have to take the whole picture and that has to be the thing that we stand on. So if we're to avoid the Pharisee effect in this way, we can't allow Scripture to be superseded by religious tradition or, or personal preference or politics or cultural shifts. And, and I want to say this. is like um, It's really, really important for us to read the Scripture through the lens of who Jesus is. Now, there, there's a guy that I follow on Instagram. His name is Rich Villadas, and he founded and pastors a church in Brooklyn, New York. Can you imagine? And I follow him on Instagram, and uh, just the other day he posted this. Cindy sent it to me this morning. This is Rich, and um, yeah, I don't know if you can read the first part there, but it says, um, well, I can't read it. <laughs> Some people are concerned about the lack of biblical literacy in our churches. I share this concern. But I'm more concerned with the inability of Christians to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus' story. Isn't that good? One can be biblically literate and tragically not aligned with Jesus. Think about that. And then uh, the follow-up to this uh, is on the side there. Um, to read the Bible through the lens of the crucified Christ is to examine all of Scripture through Jesus. The invitation, then, is to read the Gospels thoroughly, to see Jesus at work, take note of the people he offers compassion to, pay attention to his strong words to those who misuse their power, 
absorb the countercultural teachings, the subversive metaphors, meditate on his penchant for forgiveness and his refusal to maintain the status quo of the religio-political system. Watch whom he touches and whom he rebukes. Contemplate his self-giving love, it's, it's, it's con his conquering of death, his defeat of the powers. It's out of this disciplined practice, beholding the Son of God in action, we do well to examine our theological conclusions and social engagement with a community of people seeking to do the same. I love that. I love that. The last Pharisee effect is when isolation becomes the pathway to purity. For this, Jesus turns to the crowd in verse 14, and he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's, he's making a play off of food, eating food. And, and he's like the, core, the connection is the, the Jews of the first century um, in Palestine, they, they, they're surrounded by paganism for centuries. And uh, you have the Roman culture with its multiple gods and its mythology and liberal sexual values, which included a wink at pedophilia and incest. Um, and they felt all of this infringing on their Judeo values. And they wanted to maintain their life, their, the way they wanted life to be, and they wanted to prevent their children from being captured by the culture. So I don't know if you're making the connection like I am as I, as I say that, that, you know, we can totally understand that reaction and why they would want to use some of these purity codes to separate themselves. Because those traditions and practices that they had, they distinguished them from the Gentiles. Remember, I noted the Greek woman and being Jesus feeding people in a Gentile region because they perceived the Gentiles to be unclean and a threat to their way of life. So they would say, well, look, we're Jewish. We're different. We don't live like you do. We don't eat your foods. We don't dress like you. We don't live by your moral values or lack thereof. And we don't want you to contaminate us. So we're going to build walls around ourselves through these practices by our rules and traditions so that they will keep us pure. And the Pharisees are model citizens for this practice, this ability to separate themselves. And they believe that by doing so, they would, they would keep themselves pure from evil influences. But then Jesus says, look, in verse 21, it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I think it's noteworthy here that Jesus doesn't just catalog moral sins, the ones that most Pharisees uh, loathe most. Uh, he also mentions greed and malice and deceit, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly or foolishness. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking us back to the heart. It's, it's what on, what's on the inside that counts. And we need to focus on that. When we and our kids can definitely be influenced, right, by our culture, 
or our upbringing. But that is not the cause of our contamination. Jesus says these things come from within us, from the dark places of our own hearts. So when we find ourselves blaming someone or something else for who we become, Jesus says, no, you can't blame society for who you are. I'm going to ask the band come up to come up now. As, as they come up, I want to ask this question. Like, what if what it really meant to be holy is not the avoidance of bad people or those on the other side? What if, what if holy meant not to build walls around ourselves, but to break down the walls and throw open the doors and the gates and invite sinners in? What if being orthodox and taking a stand for Jesus didn't mean dropping bombs on the immoral left or the unhinged right? Instead, it meant inviting people in to see who Jesus is. What if that was what it meant to be a holy and sincere Christian? What if what if being a Christian, a holy Christian, was about opening doors, not slamming them shut by our practices and our rhetoric? See, I think rather than that, what Jesus wants from us, and I think I'm just reflecting back on what the, the sprawling passage that we just looked at today, is he wants us to emulate Jesus who cared for people, no matter who they were. He met people where they were, not where they were supposed to be. He didn't ascribe to the categories or tribalism of the day. And he was keenly aware of what people had been through and how they arrived in their current situation in which he was encountered. And he was creative in the way that he helped them and he realized that sometimes the ability for people to see took time. And it was, a, it was a process for them. And he met people in the grind of their lives. I think that that's who Jesus wants us to be. And if we keep that foremost in our minds and our hearts, we will avoid the trappings of the Pharisee effect. God help this church, those of us who call it our place of worship, our people, our home, to emulate your son Jesus in the world in the most authentic and genuine, compassionate, honest, truthful way that we possibly can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship together, church. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.